And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf, and very spe- special guest Joe Abercrombie on the Coot Street Podcast! Oh, there we are again. Yes, Joe, this is this is our attempt to do the Muppets, I guess, as the opening. Um, Not very good, though. <laughs> I, on the contrary, I found it magnificent. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll have anything to offer that can that can top that. Really, I think people should just tune out now. That is the high point. It gets no better. It's going to be a long, long hour, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, welcome, Joe. Welcome, and thank you very much for joining us. No, no, I'm very, I'm very happy to be here. Wherever here is, somewhere between <laughs> Australia, America, and the UK. I don't know. In the sea, I guess. <laughs> In the newosphere, or somewhere perfect for the, the the modern genre in which we all work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess we should start by saying congratulations on the new book, Half a King. Why, thank you. Yes, it's, it's, which is terrific. Well, I just read it recently, and I think Gary's just finished it today. Just myself. Uh, congratulations on the Publishers Weekly review, which I just saw. Yeah, they were they were very enthusiastic, and uh, you are correct. The book is excellent. Uh, yeah objectively factually true well yes and it's uh and there are going to be two more uh i will tell you um one of the things that i really like about it um and we can talk about revenge as a theme as we go on because you seem to come back to that theme every once in a while um is that well it's um it's I, i i can imagine without naming names a number of other fantasy writers for whom this novel would have been about 800 pages. Uh, so one of the first things I admire about it is its efficiency. Yeah, I mean, it certainly could have been 700 pages if I'd written it. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, I've written some other some other pretty big books. I mean, I'm, I'm not one of the the worst offenders, I guess, in, in the kind mm. of wrist-cracking category. Um, but I've written some pretty big books as well. Um, with the first law trilogy and my other my other kind of adult fully adult books if you like uh, a part of the idea with these books part of the change i was making was was to write something that was very tight very focused um and so that was a very conscious decision to do that to write something that was that was stripped down that was kind of not simple in its in its kind of morality or, or in its decision making or in the way that it was written, but it was kind of simple in, in terms of not not being a sprawling, interwoven tapestry of different threads, just one single kind of forward thrust. Um, mm-hmm. And so yeah, I mean that was that was very much the, the kind of concept right from the start. And I think you're right that you know there is a lot of very big fantasy. It feels as if you know Tolkien. Lord of the Rings felt like huge books when I read them as a kid. Lord mm. of the Rings now begins to look petite <laughs> by comparison right, exactly. with, with a lot of, you know, epic fantasy out there. Um, you know, it's it's shorter than my trilogy, shorter than the first law. Um, and compared to, you know, some of the, the huge books that guys like George Martin and Brandon Sanderson and, and Steve Erickson, these kind of guys are, are putting together and putting together into series of 10, 12, 14 books. Um yeah, I mean, my, my Lord of the Rings seems tiny. Well, I, I, a question I was going to get to, Joe, at some point, and now's probably a good time to broach it, is because you've pretty much, I guess, answered the question I would have asked, but is that the main concession you made to choosing to write for a young adult audience? I think it was, yeah, I mean, it, it may be. I think um, that that's a kind of a, it, it's tricky to untangle the process of, of why you, you come to write exactly the book that you do. Mm. Um I suppose my feeling was um, I wanted to write something that, you know, would be accessible to younger readers. But to me, that doesn't mean anything radically or wildly different from what adults would read. I mean, if I'm thinking about what I was reading at 12, 13, 14, 15, those Mm -hmm. kind of ages, I was reading some very sophisticated adult fiction, some classic fiction, things like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, Dickens, those kind of things. I was reading some very simple and obvious classic fantasy like Dragonlance and, and Eddings, things like that, of that kind. I was reading a whole range of stuff. And um, so I think, you know, what is to the young adult taste is not hugely different to what is to the, the fully adult taste. And, you know, I, I tried to keep in mind when we're talking about young adults, we're, we're talking about adults still, mm. just younger ones. And um, I think the last thing that kind of audience wants is to, is to be talked down to or, or treated like children. You know, they're tackling tough adult 
questions in their lives for the first time. And so should the characters be in these sort of books. So I think there's no reason that the, you know, somehow the gloves have to be on and it has to be softened and all the edges removed. Mm. That would be uh, a real mistake. And I don't want to write that way. I don't think anyone wants to read that kind of book either. Was it was it on your mind that you needed to change how you write whilst you wrote for a younger audience? Or was it just this realisation? I mean, Garth Nix, when he talks about young adults, said it's like 13 and up, but it's 13 and all the way up kind of a thing. And so the, sure. the, the changes, the concessions you make are in many ways, or should in many ways be minimal. And maybe the major yeah. ones are actually structural rather than anything else. I mean, you talked about making it a much more linear kind of a book. And in some ways, it reminded me of the kind of fantasy novels I recall coming out in the 60s, uh, before the whole sort of post-Tolkien boom began, when uh, you know uh, Paul Anderson was writing books like The Broken Sword, sure, yeah, which were you know I mean to some degree in plot structure quite straightforward linear stories, and they came out I guess at around the same kind of length as Half a King does, around the 300 odd page mark, and wouldn't have been considered anything you'd even comment on, nor considered as being YA. But I guess what we consider being suitable for an audience has changed over time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, what's considered suitable for a YA, you know, a YA audience is is rapidly changing all the time to the point that you know things that would once have been considered adult books without any question are now almost having a second lease of life with it with a, a new YA branding. I mean, we talked about Eddings earlier. Mm. The Belgariad say. I mean, when I read that as a, as a kid, that was an adult book. There was no indication it was a book aimed at a younger audience but now it very much does feel like a kind of classic ya book with its coming of age theme and it's you know relatively sure. uh, easy going on the on the sex and violence and so on um and i think you're right that you know ya has come to include some really quite extreme material at times mm, if it's sure. considered right for the audience right for the project you know it can be very intense on swearing it can be intense on sex it can be intense on violence uh not to say that ya always is um, but it certainly can be. And so I think for me that the real change was, as you say, a structural one, mm. uh, a move towards a kind of tighter focus and a quicker page turning sort of approach. Um, that's certainly what I wanted to do. And I very much didn't want to write something that would kind of upset my established readers that, that they wouldn't be able to enjoy. And so I think when you say, you know, 13 and all the way up, that was very much what was in my mind. I think as well, it was in my mind that maybe there's an adult audience who are a little bit turned off by the huge size mm. of some epic fantasy. You know, I think Game of Thrones has clearly had a massive impact. Lord of the Rings as films before that has brought in a whole new audience for these kind of books. But the, I'm sure are people who, you know, look at the, the weight of something like the wheel of time and think, you know, yeah, do sure. I really want to start that? Yeah. Mm hmm. And exactly, and that's one of the problems that I've had, and, and this happens uh, when you write a lot of reviews. If if you miss the first two thousand page novels in a ten volume series, you can't. There's no way in. Uh, there there simply isn't any way that if I'm looking at the the fourth or fifth volume in a series, that I'm going to have time to read the three thousand pages that preceded it in order to find out what's going on. Um, but I no, think absolutely. also, so, you know, so one of the things that Half a King does is it. In addition to your uh, regular readers, is an opportunity for, um, I guess, I guess some of the standalone novels like Best Served Cold would work this way as well. But for somebody who doesn't want to jump into the middle of a series or the middle of a trilogy, it's a good way of getting uh, a sense of what you do, which which is something we want to talk about because I think it's kind of extraordinary. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely. I think. Having an established world is great in many ways because you you have this wealth of of setting, this wealth of established characters to draw on. But there's also a kind of a weight to it that builds up the more books you write in a given world. You know, you think to yourself, oh, I know a character I could use. I could use that character. You put them in and suddenly you realize, hold on, these two characters know each other, don't they? You know, <laughs> there's all these relationships, all these, this history, all this stuff you've got to keep in mind. And it can it can start to feel like a bit of a you know, a, a chain around you um, that that makes you feel the need to kind of flesh certain things out that maybe you otherwise wouldn't. So starting in a new world, I think, gave me the opportunity to be a kind of more stripped down and uh, to just tell a very focused story without too much digression, if you like. Although you have plenty of opportunity to flesh out the world later if you wanted to. 
Mm. Yeah, and I mean, as, as you as you said, there are two more books in this mm. trilogy as things are, as things are planned. And although they pick up different central characters, the sort of overall arc of the of the world and of some of the people in it, obviously, you know, continues. But I wanted mm. also the for the three books to be kind of discrete stories on their own, um, as well as forming a sort of overall arc. Um, when I wrote the first law, I, I I gave no concession to that at all. I just wrote one huge book in three bits, and the first mm. one has minimal end, really minimal arc of its own. Uh, and I think looking back, that was that was you know there were advantages to that, but I think it was a mistake. Maybe it's there's no reason why you can't you know tell things in more self-contained bites. Uh, so I wanted to write three focus books that told three kind of focus stories of three different sets of characters in a way, but you know with people coming in and out of them as well. One of the other things that I found fascinating about the the backstory, the background, which I don't know what's going to be explored in the second and third volumes, uh, but I've seen this before um, in in some of your work and in, in in some other work, which is widely regarded as fantasy, is the setting is clearly a fantasy setting, and uh, the the geography. Uh, one of the things I did like about Half a King is that even without maps, I could figure out where things were and where people were going. But there's also this deep background, uh, these, this elfin metal stuff, which, which is sort of fantastic. But apart from that, um, there's not a lot of fantastic happening in the book. Yeah, I mean, I've always been, um, I think, drawn to the more low fantasy end of things, if you like. Um, mm. I suppose I played a lot of D&D &D and, and things of that kind as a kid and, you know, dabbled in a lot of very, very high fantasy settings where there are millions of exotic races and magic is routine and magic items are everywhere. Um, I suppose I kind of felt that magic feels more magical uh, if it's rare within the setting and if it kind of strikes the people who encounter it as as strange and inexplicable as, you know, it does to the reader. That, mm -hmm. to me, is just a more a more exciting, more magical way to, to, to balance things. I mean, it varies, of course, and people have many, many different approaches, all of which have, have advantages, but that has always felt to me like the kind of the, the natural thing. I, I want the setting to feel pretty much like our world, you know, with some important alterations, but I want it to feel relevant, um, realistic, I suppose, up to a point, difficult word though it is to use. I want it to feel kind of concrete and relatable. Um, mm. And so I don't want it to feel kind of overpowered by magic. And, I, and also for me, I don't necessarily want to explain magic in too much depth. I think that can often be a mistake. Um, a lot of people like systems of magic that are very rigidly defined and that you can almost see the, the mechanics working. To me, I want to be surprised and shocked and horrified by magic. And I, I, I think to completely explain it is to, is to lose mm. some of that. So I prefer... Yeah, the magic to come like a bolt from the blue, hard to explain, hard to understand, and and you know, rare, rare and strange. Mm -hmm. And oh, Jonathan, do you feel that sometimes raises the question of what it is that makes a book fantasy at all? I mean, it seems to be a question that we've circled around elsewhere is you know, ha has the nature of genre changed at all over the last? I mean, because I think it has over the last thirty or forty years. And do you find more? Edge case works, or what appear to be edge case works, appearing in the middle of the genre, and things like, well, you know, if there's little overt magic and whatever else, what is it that makes the story fantasy? I mean, I know that I was asked the question about a story like Some Desperado, you know, what makes uh -huh. it fantasy? You know, what makes it fantasy? Because there's no, there's no real overt magic in the story at all, that kind of thing. And there's a lot yeah. of the same about Half a King, and a lot of the other work. Yeah, well, Some Desperado certainly on its own is almost impossible to tell from a Western. Mm. Um, I mean, when, when you understand that it's part of the kind of wider setting that is clearly a kind of invented mm. setting, it sort of makes sense as an extension of that. But read on its own, certainly, yeah, there's, there's virtually nothing there that would uh, separate it from a Western. I suppose that question of, you know, people who are very immersed in genre, we're, we're always mulling over the, these ideas of categorization, you know, what is urban fantasy what is grimdark what separates fantasy from science fiction we're often fascinated by this i think mm -hmm. there's a in a wider sense does it matter um i i find it much more interesting whether a book is you know works 
mm-hmm. or not. And, and often for me, the things that make a book work, a fantasy book work, are the things that unite it with everything else. You know, they're the characters, plot, the way the prose is structured, the, the voice, you know. These are all things that you'd get in any book and that are vital to make any book work. And in a way, the things that make something specifically fantasy, the kind of magical races and the, and the magic and the invented place, those kind of things, uh, I, I'm less interested in a way, and, I, and I'm not sure how important they necessarily are. Um, often where we draw the line is almost arbitrary. I've been watching, say, Vikings recently, the TV mm-hmm. series, um, mm-hmm. and I read a lot of Viking style fiction. Uh, Robert Lowe is one writer that I, that I admire a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he writes, he, he wrote a book called The Whale Road and some sequels to that. He writes in a very immersive way, taking, you know, the, from the Viking point of view, taking the Viking mindset in which the world is full of very real supernatural things, you know. Uh, and whether there, there is anything supernatural going on is an open question. They absolutely believe that gods and spirits and everything are real and that the, you know, the, the ceremonies they go through will have an important effect. So to them, magic's very real. And in fact, the mindset that you get in a book like that, that very carefully and, and with a lot of good research investigates a very alien mindset, that can often feel a lot more fantastical than does, you know, an epic fantasy book in which everyone has a very Western, <laughs> modern approach mm-hmm. to the world, except they occasionally cast spells. You know, so which of those feels more magical and mystical? <clears throat> Where's the line? It's, it's kind of impossible to say. And we've talked uh, before on the podcast about the sometimes arbitrary line between historical fiction and fantasy. Because as you say, if you if, if a writer adopts the worldview of the characters he's writing about, as, for example, Gene Wolfe did in the Soldier of the Mist novels, then it's clear that fantastic things are happening, but they're not fantastic to the, to the characters. They're part of that character's natural world. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked with Nicola Griffith about her historical novel, Hild, which is on the Nebula ballot. And it was very clear that in approaching uh, early medieval England, uh, she approached it the way she would approach constructing a fantasy world. It was as alien a world to us as an invented world would be. Yeah. Well, in the case of epic fantasies, they're often not that alien because they become, you know, based around such very familiar kind of ideas. Um, That's true. They seem almost more familiar than, well, a lot more familiar than can, you know, a, a really interestingly written Viking novel, for instance. Do you almost end up getting something like a, a cozy epic fantasy? In some well, way- I mean, I, th- I, th- I think you certainly can. I, I suppose the, the, the thing is that genres, in a way, are designed to provide readers with the same kind of thing they got last time Mm. um they're designed to provide people with certain routinized structures wherein they're not going to be too much surprised um which i sometimes find you know it's nice up to a point then it can start to become a bit disappointing yeah uh the work that is most interesting often i think always of something like unforgiven you know the western which is extremely recognizably a western almost a cheesy western almost obvious in the in the elements that it contains and yet the approach and the kind of style is so different uh that it makes something totally new and something that's greater than you'd ever get from something that's very familiar you know because that that little new element gives you something much more exciting um so i like those things that that sort of challenge our ideas about what a genre should be is that is that sort of what you feel like you're doing with with your books these days? I mean, I'm, I'm, obviously there's a lot of discussion about you know the whole grim dark thing, though. I'm not sure that it amounts to as much as all the discussion you know would have had it painted as. I mean, as near as I can tell, it was a desire to write more gritty, realistic fantasy, and not a lot more. Or or do I sell it short? I don't know. I mean, yeah, grim dark is an interesting one because it's kind of there's no real definition of it. It's very ill defined. So people tend to kind of use it to refer to whatever bugbear they're kind of discussing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it becomes a sort of closed box in which you pile ideas that possibly doesn't correspond all that closely to any real examples mm-hmm. once you start looking at it. Um, I mean, for me, writing the first law, say, um, the idea was very much to write my take on epic fantasy, you know, yeah. something that was not necessarily revolutionary, Um but I suppose I, I was frustrated with the way in which epic fantasy had become, as I saw it, you know, quite predictable, 
quite routinized, um, mm. quite morally simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose I'm talking about the, the kind of stuff that was very commercially successful in the 80s and 90s, Eddings and Brooks and Dragonlance, things that kind of, you know, developed on from Tolkien very much. Um, I felt like I was never surprised enough uh, and that you'd see the same patterns over and over and you could kind of tell from when a character was introduced exactly what that character would do, exactly how they'd end up. Uh, you were very rarely surprised and I love things that are surprising. You know, I love things that are shocking. Um, and so reading Game of Thrones in the in the 90s when that first appeared was a bit of an eye-opener for me and I think a big inspiration towards trying to write myself. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I suppose there was, a, there was a degree to which I wanted to investigate some of these, these cliches and tropes of the genre by, you know, picking at them and turning them upside down and seeing how I could, I could surprise people. Uh, but then it's always easy after the fact to say, ah, I had a grand plan. <laughs> yes. And now you see how the cogs have fitted into place exactly as I always planned. Whereas actually what happens is you sit down, you start writing a scene and almost without knowing it or, or without having any idea why you write it a certain way. And you think, oh, this would be cool. I'll try doing this. And you do that. And then hundreds and thousands of those tiny decisions stuck together ends up, you know, creating something that perhaps nudges a certain way. It's very hard to say how it all happens. I wonder if some of that it has to do with the language. Uh, as you mentioned, there are word choices and phrase phrase choices. And we talked about, <clears throat> for example, the oh, a story like Some Desperado, which draws on a kind of Western mythology, and it, and, and it is a Western. And it, but but in a sense, the whole uh, Sergio Leone Western landscape is a fantasy landscape to begin with, which is something I think Stephen King was well aware of when he started writing the Gunslinger stories. So uh-huh. borrowing yeah. some of that uh, sort of wasteland imagery, and um, and then some of the hard-boiled uh, characters and language, which uh, which which you'd get before in fantasy. I mean, I, I, I suppose Fritz Leiber really started what you might call hard-boiled fantasy. And Zelazny picked up on it, and a few other writers. Um, but in, in, in a sense, aren't you partially importing techniques and resources from what used to be considered other completely separate genres? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think absolutely so. Um, but I think, you know, what you say about Fritz Lieber and, um, you know, Jack Vance, writers like that, were doing something very, very, very different to what Tolkien was doing at hmm. a similar time. I- but Tolkien has obviously come to be almost so you know definitive of what epic fantasy is is about um that these things seem like you know strange outliers when you read them now in a way um i suppose there's always been this tendency to kind of give and take and for different writers to absorb bits from other genres but epic fantasy seems to have become particularly sealed off in a weird kind of way um and certainly there was a tendency towards kind of romantic language slightly flowery language at its mm-hmm. worst, a sort of cod medievalism. Mm. Prithee, yeah. good mine liege lord, for the orcs <laughs> they doth approacheth. You know, that type of thing. Uh, and I mean, unless you are very, very good at that, as Tolkien obviously was, you know, really understanding what he was doing, unless you're very good at that, it is ridiculous, I find. And incredibly fake, uh, because we are, after all, modern writers writing for a modern audience. Yeah. And so... My feeling is that unless you're doing something, you know, that takes advantage of modern terminology and modern words of, of the kind of impact and boldness that modern writing can give you, you, you're doing something that comes across to me as kind of a bit phony on the whole. To me, the kind of honest way of writing felt like to do something tight and involving and visceral. The sort of writing you get from someone like James Elroy, say. Mm-hmm. I've always mm-hmm. admired a lot the way that he writes and the way he writes from tight point of view. Um and writes, you know, different characters who come at a central mystery from a way that is reflective of their personality. Um, I like LA Confidential a lot, both the book and the film. And that was slightly on my mind when writing as well. I suppose when I read a lot of epic fantasy in the kind of 80s and 90s, that was what I felt was missing or one of the things, a sort of bold directness in the language. Uh, and, and I suppose a, a bit of a lack of truthfulness as well about some of the characters because we're invited to suppose that really quite violent, dangerous people are also very stately and courteous and 
talk in a very considered and roundabout manner and probably don't swear very much. <laughs> and I suppose my feeling was that, you know, very dangerous, violent people are liable to be dangerous and violent, you know, <laughs> in the way they talk as well as in the way they behave. Um, and, you know, Aragorn can slaughter his way through a, a legion of orcs and still be a sensitive lover and a righteous king at the end of it, whereas the rest of us may have more trouble. Do you think that kind of that we're in a period when people are reacting to that almost industrialized period of epic fantasy from the the mid '80s? Because I mean, there really were like waves of it. I mean, there was the whole Tolkien, then there was a very tight wave of Brooks and Donaldson, I guess, particularly followed by a period when we suddenly, well, and I guess what Feist, then there was a period when we had what Eddings coming along, and then uh, Jordan, and whatever else. And you were looking for something to change because you did feel that I mean. A reasonable complaint about critics is that they've struggled to come to terms with talking about epic fantasy because of the scale of the volume of work to read and everything else. But it does seem as though there has been a reaction within the ranks, if you like, against that period of epic fantasy, not because people hate it, but just because there's an element of, well, we've been to a, a cod medieval English background countless number of times there's endless numbers of rolling green fields and young apprentices working on farms about to go mm. off and discover their destiny and that maybe there was mm. a time perhaps ignited as you should perhaps suggest with uh, game of thrones that, that uh, people were really looking for hungering for a different kind of story to tell and hear yeah yeah uh, absolutely and, and you know we've mentioned a few writers already like guys like pal anderson and fritz lieber and so on who uh we're always doing very, very different things. I mean, you know, they could talk about people like Michael Moorcock and so on, who are, you know, are very much almost opposite to to what Tolkien was doing. But I think, you know, talking to and, and reading interviews with a lot of writers who are my contemporaries, uh, you know, guys like Scott Lynch, Pat Rothfuss, Pete Brett, Brent Weeks, these these kind of guys, they mm. do have very similar things to say to me, you know, that they'd been saturated in fantasy as, as kids and started to become a little bit, you know, uh, bored perhaps even with the way it was going, with the repetition, with the similarity of things, and felt the need to do something different. And then, you know, almost having made that thought, had that thought already, then read Game of Thrones and thought, oh, it can be done differently, and decided to, you know, try something, uh, try their own take on something similar. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think definitely there was a, it feels as if there was a period where things were shiny, simple, uh, you know, morally pure up to a point, <laughs> mor- morally simple. Uh, you had good guys and bad guys and there wasn't a lot of trade between the two and you pretty much knew who was who from the start and you weren't much surprised. Um, and these days it feels like there's a much, I think, broader canvas really because you still do get very tr- successful traditional sure. things out there. And, you know... Lord of the Rings still and the Hobbit still loom very large in in the in the wider consciousness. Um, well, they do. Um, but it, yeah, it, but it, it feels like sense. just there's, there's more options and and there's a lot of kind of morally ambiguous stuff out there now as well. And I think, you know, perhaps there's been stuff that's erred too far in that direction. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would argue that. I often hear this idea that you know everything is filthy and repugnant and morally dark and every character is a hideous murderer in fantasy these days. I don't really buy that. No. particularly but i think you know you get outliers at both ends and interesting books are those that mix different bits of the two it occurred to me that most of these um series that we've been talking about that are directly in in line of the tolkien tradition or even imitations of tolkien were were series by american writers and i'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of very many british writers who were doing that because as you mentioned moorcock was doing a heavily ironized version of fantasy uh, at the same time that um, American yeah. writers were, were aping Tolkien. Um, and yeah. Yeah, it feels like British writers, in a way, um, you know, right, Tolkien's done that. They, they didn't feel they could really top that. They, they almost surrendered yeah. the field to American writers a little bit, didn't they, in, as far as epic fantasy goes. I guess I guess David Gemmell's the guy who was doing, I don't mm. know if you call it epic, maybe you call it heroic fantasy. It's always very hard to know exactly where the, the, sure. where the lines are. I mean, his stuff was maybe a bit darker, a bit grittier. Um, but yeah, generally it has, it has become an American, an American thing. And perhaps there's a kind of degree of, uh, 
I don't know, of, of kind of American nostalgia for, for, for a Britain that never was mm-hmm. to some of this as well. Uh, leading on from Tolkien, because, you know, Tolkien has obviously a big element of that as well with the Shire and everything. Right. Maybe that's why when Lev Grossman famously anointed Mark, uh, George Martin as the American Tolkien, which it, mm. at the time I thought, I thought was a silly statement in one sense, and the other sense, it makes a lot of sense because it's an American. Well, it's it's it's, it's the War Wars of the Roses, obviously, but but it it is a reimagining of fantasy in a non-Tolkien template, and to that extent, it it was a it was and is a significant contribution um, made by an American writer. Uh, so maybe that's where the shift has occurred. But um, I wanted to get back to a little bit of the other, um, uh, what I started to mention, the sense that you get in um, in this newer kind of grittier fantasy is that there's not only a lot of character ambiguity, but a fair amount of irony and, and, and even a fair amount of dark humor showing up in it, which mm. um, which is rare in the Tolkien imitations as well. Yeah, I suppose uh, humor is another thing that... Um that was, you know, another thing that I felt was missing a little bit, I guess, uh, from what I was reading. You tended to either have, you know, you could have full-on slapstick, uh-huh. uh, satire, joke, you know, <laughs> as, as Terry Pratchett's kind of first few books certainly were, you know, although it, they developed into something very different over time. But you could have things mm. that, you know, absolutely ridiculed fantasy, really. For, for and, and then you could have things that, you know, almost became pompous, and doom laden in their solemn self regard. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, to- Tolkien has obviously massive uh, advantages and, and huge skills and amazing things that he did, but he wasn't much of a humorist, really. I mean, he wasn't <laughs> aiming for that. So, you know, you can't, you can't blame him for that, but that wasn't, he didn't really cover that ground. And I think in, in very slavishly imitating what Tolkien did, uh, people tended to also, you know, end up with this quite solemn, pompous style in the end um which can become quite quite dry over time you wouldn't want it to be the only thing in your diet no um and so yeah i mean i think for me a sense of humor about things is is just vitally important i mean i wouldn't want things to become again out and out comedy i wouldn't want them to be ridiculous but i think you know if you look at something like you know mike lee's films or alan akeborn these kind of you know playwrights and writers Mm. there's huge humor in there but they're not jokes as films, you know. They're very, they cover very serious ground, very dark ground, and in a way, the humour that's in there serves to make the whole thing that much more kind of poignant. It serves to make the darkness the more dark, you know, and gives you glints of light within the darkness. So that, to me, is what you know you aim for in really great writing. Often is is great sense of humour and things that are really things that are really funny only add to the add to the darkness. So I'd hate to. Yeah, be writing things that that don't have some wit in them, certainly, and where the characters don't feel like they have their own personalities, their own sense of humour. I'm I'm curious to ask you one thing. Um, You worked as a film editor before you started uh, writing novels or having novels published, because you've been published for about eight years now. Looking Mm. back, how do you feel your experience in film has influenced what you've chosen to write? Yeah, that's an interesting one, actually. I mean, I, I suppose um, you're kind of uh, almost subconsciously influenced by everything you do and, and that you read or watch or everything that happens to you and that, you know, you feel strongly about. It all goes in somewhere and finds an expression somewhere. And as you say, I was, uh, well, I mean, a TV editor, really, for 10 years or so, freelance TV editor. And it was partly because I had time off in between jobs that I really started writing as, as a mm-hmm. sort of project to make use of that time. Um, and I think it, it taught me an awful lot. I, I had a kind of bit of a stab at writing when I was 20, just after I left college. And it came out, funnily enough, as a hugely pompous, obvious, <laughs> uh, dry, repetitive, over-familiar epic fantasy. Um and then 10 years later, after having worked a bit and also having read Game of Thrones, but also reading a lot more widely as well, you know, I, I start, I tried work on the first law and it had much more of its own tone, its own voice. Um, I think actually just the experience of sitting and working with other people was a very valuable one. As an editor, you, you tend to sit in a room with a director and, you know, you'll be given sequences to edit. You'll work on those. 
and after a while the director will come back and they'll give you an opinion and you have to listen to what they tell you uh, and then you'll have executive producers come in or producers and, and they'll watch it and they'll have opinions and actually it's a very interesting exercise because your first thought is always when someone gives you gives you a critique of some kind your first thought is always nah you're talking rubbish you don't know what you're talking about this this sequence is beautiful the way i've done it <laughs> and you want to tell them to get lost the famous mm. uh joke is you know how many editors does it take to change a light bulb does it really need changing <laughs> because you'll always find an excuse to kind of not change things but what i learned over time is that you know hearing opinions you don't always agree with them but it gives you the opportunity to look at things again and usually taking on other people's opinions gives you a kind of new insight yourself that helps you to make something better even if you don't do it exactly the way they had in mind um and so that was an important experience when you know, I came to work with editors myself and, you know, try and take on some, some of their opinions and improve work in concert with other people. Um, I think also I, I, I saw a lot of people work on scripts some very, very uh, experienced script people, documentary filmmakers, and saw, you know, how they go about getting the most effect out of the smallest number of words. Uh, so that was a very interesting experience. But then I think also a lot of the the pacing and the rhythm of how you put together a TV program or a drama is the same as it would be in, in writing in a way. So, you know, the beats on which you'd leave a scene on which you'd start a scene, the timing of things, the details within a scene that you choose to dwell on. I think those are kind of universal skills in a way. So editing was, was vastly important in, you know, learning about how you structure things, how you pace things, where you can come in and out of a scene, what's important, what's not. Because writing, in a way, is all about what you choose to describe. You know, you could you could take an infinite amount of time describing a scene, mm. describing every detail of the room, every detail of every person involved, every little thing they do. Um, but it's all about what you choose to describe in order to get the pace of the scene right and, and generate the feel of what it's like to be there. Um, and I think, yeah, working as an editor was definitely important in developing that, though... There's no substitute for just sitting down and experimenting yourself and then just going over and over and over things and revising them endlessly until you feel you develop something that feels about right. Well, that answers about what I was going to ask next. When, when, when you look at uh, Half a King, one of, the thing that, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is, is what makes a book like that as efficient as it is. Because as we said, it could have been three times the length. And one of it, part, a good part of it is how much of the character... Uh, the characters of his oarmates, for example, are, are revealed entirely through dialogue, whereas another character who becomes important later, the character called Nothing, who's constantly scrubbing the floors, has to be introduced with no dialogue at all. Uh, and we have to cut back to him, using cinematic terms, we have to cut back to him scrubbing the floor often enough that we realize uh, what we know about that character so that we can sort of be surprised later on. So some characters are introduced primarily through dialogue and some characters through, in this case, repetitive action. And I assume that's a very conscious decision you have to make in introducing these characters. Yeah, I mean, I think um, dialogue is always the best way to work, often, nearly always. I mean, in terms of developing a character and, and getting things done, you can achieve a huge amount with dialogue. You can kind of kill many birds with one stone. A good line of dialogue will advance plot, it will develop the relationship between the person speaking and the person spoken to, and it exposes something about the person speaking. So if you were trying to do that through thought or through, you know, simple narrative voice, mm -hmm. it's much more complicated and cumbersome. So you can do things with amazing efficiency. I mean, I think of writers like uh, Elmore Leonard. Yeah. Um, whose Western stories I read while I was kind of working on Red Country, I was reading a lot of Westerns, and he has this incredible skill at using literally one line of dialogue and a throwaway description of, a, of an action, and he'll have a character completely mm. set up in your mind who is unlike anyone else, because as well, these Western stories, they have 500 Indian scouts, you know, 600 grizzled cavalrymen, 80 cowboys, <laughs> and yet Leonard finds this way of somehow making them always a little bit distinct. Um, and he does that chiefly through just having this, this amazing ear with dialogue and, and a, an amazing way of kind of describing little ticks. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, that would always be my first choice, I think, to, to kind of boil away the, the linking stuff and work as much as possible through dialogue. I mean, I, I think often you feel you're really motoring with a scene when you end up just having exchanges of dialogue that have nothing else but, but stuff mm-hmm. that's within speech marks with just the occasional, you know, said this or a, a movement or a motion to, to just designate who's talking to make sure the reader doesn't lose their thread. But that to me is often when things are really cooking well is when it's just purely dialogue. There's nothing else interposing and you can, you can see very clearly and understand very clearly who's talking, what's being said. And it's amazing how quickly you can develop things, you know, using that kind of approach. So that's certainly what I try to do. But as you say, I mean, if you use dialogue a lot, then then the, the, the absence of dialogue can itself then be quite effective. So, you know, a character who never speaks, you know, almost exactly. becomes interesting by virtue of that. Sure. One of the things that I thought, uh, you, you mentioned Elmore Leonard, and, and that's something that's been commented on quite a bit. Uh, uh, e- even American readers, when writing his, reading his hard-boiled fiction, um, sometimes have complained uh, that the dialogue doesn't look right on the page until you hear it. And then you realize that, uh, that, that what he's done is copied actual patterns of speech that are, that are so authentic they look inauthentic in, in a way. I was on a radio program with him once years ago, and he'd, um, when he, he was describing why he stopped writing Westerns, and the answer was very simple. The market dried up for him, so he thought he'd write police stories. And said that he went down to the Detroit police station and just listened for weeks on end, writing down scraps of dialogue and realizing the kind of shorthand that people use to develop relationships with one another. And even the power structures that existed within dialogue between a suspect, a cop, a a social worker, and so forth and so on. Um, And that gave kind of naturalistic authenticity to his fiction, which, which it seems to me you and others can and have exported in fantasy. Well, that's a huge compliment. I mean, that's that's certainly something I'd love to love to be doing, um, because I think, as I say, there's this kind of um, a stately, slightly ponderous, oldy style <laughs> that that you know some writers mm-hmm. have tended to use, which I find a real turnoff, and and I find it makes me disbelieve in the people. I don't I don't really believe in what's being said. It doesn't feel truthful or believable or honest, you know. Um, what I want is for the for the characters to just feel immediately honest and real and relatable. Uh, that's the aim, and and also to be. Although I've written some pretty huge books, I do want to keep things tight to not have you know huge digressions and and lots of flabbiness in there. I want it to be you know effective and moving somewhere. So yeah, I mean that's 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 a that's a huge compliment. That's what I'd like to be doing to write something that feels kind of modern, relevant, relatable with, you know, characters who, who speak to the point. <laughs> mm-hmm. While all of the issues and um, oh, classifications and everything else that happen within genre really are just of interest in many ways to those of us who are trained spotters within the genre, I'm curious about something. Um, Stephen Erickson has recently, you know, the author of the Malazan books, has recently talked mm. about how he feels uh, there's a real lack of serious attention and respect paid to a lot of what's been written these days as modern fantasy. And I'm curious what your thoughts on that are, how you feel that work like your own, like that of Stephen Erickson, like the work of Patrick Rothfuss and Scott Lynch or whatever else are being regarded not not just by readers at large where they're very popular, but within, if you like, whatever the, the gatekeepered world of critical genre. Well, I mean, first of all, those other guys are absolute hacks. (laughs) Um, but my stuff clearly is worthy of much much deeper attention Um, on late night television and by people speaking in hushed voices of deep respect possibly while spot lit on a wide stage in corduroy jackets I think that's where where my stuff should be absolutely Um, I don't know I I sort of I always feel a little it's hard not to feel a bit annoyed when you know literary novels which are read by ten people and bought by two of them um, <laughs> get massive attention in, in newspapers and so on. But, you know, I guess there's a degree to which it was ever thus. Uh, mm. And who cares up to a point? Sure. You know, I'd, I'd much, much rather be selling a lot of books, both because the money's nice, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but also who wants to write books that nobody reads? You know, the whole point of this is to be read. Um, 
And you know those the, those guys you talk about. I mean, Pat Rothfuss, number one bestseller, right? New York yeah. Times bestseller. I mean, he's selling a lot of books. He's being read by a lot of people. He's touching a lot of readers there. And um, I'd far far rather be doing that than you know preaching to a tiny choir who uh, you know are only interested in a certain style of fiction. So. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know how you go about forcing people to to take you seriously. You know, why for why? I, I don't know how you do that. I think all you can really do is is try and write the best books you can and and the books you like. You know, write write to your own taste and then hope you'll find a readership. Really, I think that's that's all there is in the end. And you know, if you write something that that truly does touch people and and has a really wide appeal, like say Martin obviously has done and and. The, the Game of Thrones TV series is clearly getting huge attention now. Sure. I mean, a slightly kind of a slightly baffled patronising attention at times, as though to say, <laughs> "Oh, we can't quite ignore this because it's getting eight million people watching every episode." We'd like to, but we have to take it seriously. Um, I think, you know, who cares? It's got to be who cares in the end, doesn't it? <laughs> well, what? Entirely an, an either proposition between being hugely popular and getting you know on the Booker shortlist or on the uh, I don't know the National Book Award, which a few years ago was famous for having nominated five novels, none of which had sold more than three thousand copies. But you have you have at least in the UK you have a Hilary Mantel who manages to be both massively popular and get shortlisted and get awards, and I think that might be the kind of respect if you write a serious work that that sells a lot of copies that why should a genre be excluded from, uh, from that kind of critical and award attention? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I, I don't know that it is though, is it? I mean, uh, you know, there are certainly, again, it comes back to how do you categorize genre? I mean, a writer like say Margaret Atwood, um, yeah. clearly sells books and clearly is hugely rated, you know, but critically both within sci-fi and, you know, in the more general fiction where everyone would say she's not sci-fi, she's, she's, Everyone wants to say she's in our camp, right? Mm, yeah. Um, because that makes their camp look better. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, a lot of these are kind of false distinctions often, aren't they? I mean, they're they're drawn for marketing reasons. They're, they're drawn for all kinds of reasons that are nothing to do with the books themselves or the way they're read. And I think, I think a lot of readers aren't the great mass of readers. In a way, they're not terribly interested in these kind of distinctions. So I, I try not to be too interested myself. I mean, it's impossible not to sort of take note of how people speak about what you write and the kind of thing you write and your peers and so on. But uh, I, I try not to take it too seriously. Because the other thing is you just see the same, you see the same arguments endlessly recycled as well. Yeah. As new well, people come in and kind of become incredibly excited <laughs> and animated about this, this exact same thing you were discussing three years ago and six years ago and nine years ago. Um, so I try not to take it all too seriously, you know. But but then there must be something kind of what odd, I guess, if nothing else, for nothing other than light conversational purpose, that mm. in the history of an award called the World Fantasy Award, I'm yeah. pretty confident when I say this, I don't think an epic fantasy has ever won. No, no. Well, I mean, <clears throat> it is interesting that, but then I, I suppose there's also a degree to which every award kind of has its own tone. Sure. Um and its own priorities, although they're not always, you know, explicitly stated, we kind of know, don't we, what sort of books win a Hugo? And we yeah. kind of know, don't we, what sort of books win a World Fantasy Award? Uh, and we kind of know what sort of books win a Booker Prize. So, yeah, in a way, it is annoying that sci-fi doesn't make the Booker Prize, but in another way, we kind of know, don't we, what sort of books win the Booker Prize? So why are we complaining that the sort of books that don't win the Booker Prize aren't winning it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it, it sort of feels like, you know, people who like the World Fantasy Awards ethos, who like the sort of books it picks, the very deserving books it picks, of course, yeah. um, they, it serves a purpose for them, you know. So why should the purpose it serves for them be kind of diluted by smashing a load of stuff in there, which is of a different type? I mean, we might feel, I might feel, I might feel, that there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole slew of Jarba Crummy books that should have been on that award slate, you know, but I'm not sure that's, you know, all that helpful either to me or them. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm very, I'm bitter about the whole awards thing because I never win any. So you know, I'm too commercial for the for the creative ones and too creative for the commercial ones. It's a, <laughs> it's a tragic, it's a, a terrible tragedy in my curse. life. It will be my great regret on my deathbed. I'm sure. I am sure that at that moment, as you look back across your, uh, a, a, a life and a bibliography, your first thing will be, damn if I'd only I'd picked up one of those awards. I know. The lack of a nebula will be the thing that will kill it all well, for me. Just in my mouth. Uh, I mean, um, when you mentioned World Fantasy Awards, looking back at the early years of World Fantasy Awards, they were very darker. It was almost at the beginning a horror award, uh, and a lot of horror fiction was recognized. And it's it's it, it's gone through phases. It's gone through literary phases. It's gone through kind of postmodern phases. It's, I, I think Jonathan's right. It's never really gone through a kind of epic fantasy phase. And if you look at the Hugo Awards, they, you know, when I was a kid, they were science fiction awards, period. And now mm. they're pretty much, you know, anything that's really popular and has a constituency. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, awards are a function of the way they're judged, aren't they, really, yeah. I suppose, in the end. And um, I, I guess I tend to have more respect for awards that are juried and have a kind of mission statement, mm. you know, yeah. like the Arthur C. Clarke or, or the World Fantasy to a degree, than I do for ones like the, the Hugos where... In the end, the people who vote have, won't have read everything. You know, they, they won't have, there's no real effort to compare, necessarily. I mean, I'm sure there are people voting for the Hugo who very meticulously compare the nominees and, and you know, decide who they want to vote for. But I would imagine the majority vote for books, you know, the, the one book they've read out of the five. Yeah. Sure, or right. Or yeah. quite yeah. often the one author they've read out of the five, having not even probably read any of the books that are on there. Uh-huh. I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised. So <laughs> it's it's hard to take those too seriously. Anything that has a major kind of publicly voted component, they're still interesting. But um, but it's, I don't it's know. you can't wide. take it seriously. Well, on, on the other hand, I mean, you don't take these things too seriously. But you must. Well, I I I get the feeling you take fantasy more seriously than that would have us believe, because you're fairly widely read in it. And when you talk about it, you talk about it with some of the approach of a student of the field. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I take it seriously and I take the, I mean, absolutely, I take, well, I mean, what's the famous quote? Take the work seriously, never take yourself seriously. Yeah. I mean, I try to take that approach if I can, um, obviously failing on, on both counts in, in many <laughs> different ways. Um you know, I, I take what I write immensely seriously, and I, and I absolutely do try and uh, write the very best books I can and put, put a lot of work into doing that. But I think awards specifically, they're, they're just such a, a, a difficult area, and they're yeah. so, you know, fraught with politics, and it's very, very hard to separate the work from the author and, you know, the author from their place within the network of authors more generally. And I mean, the internet obviously has, has kind of amplified that effect a lot as well. Um, and th- it feels like things are getting very overtly political now as well. Yeah. You know, your political affiliation is such a, is, is a big factor and, and it feels like things are hugely partisan almost. Things are kind of dissolving into blocks on, on politics or co- cohering into blocks maybe on kind of politics, uh, lines of politics, lines of geography, lines of style, um, and it's less and less about the work often. Um, I don't know if there's a solution to that. I don't know if there needs to be a solution to that. I, I suppose... That, it, yep, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, I would have thought that will pass with time in and of itself. It, it may sure. well, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure it's politics. I mean, I, I see what you're saying with, uh, with, with some of what's certainly going on this year is politics in terms of ideology. What uh, what it looks to me like uh, this year with the Hugo ballots, which I, I, I saw what you didn't say about them on your blog, which I admired greatly. Um, but it seems to me this is the importing of a sports team fan mentality into into literature, uh, and, and people are so, there, there's a kind of passionate support of our team, but more so even an interest in this in, in the advancement of the sport, uh, and 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 that may be um, destructive in the long run, but it's it's much more simple-minded than ideology, although I think there is some ideology involved, obviously. It feels like there's a, there's a lot of awards out there as well. I mean, there's more there's more <laughs> and more um, of various different kinds and different missions, and and there's a lot of different sub-genres. Things are very fragmented. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure we'll get again, you know, the, the situation you had with the Hugo in the 50s and 60s yeah. where, you know, yeah. the Worldcon seemed to really be represent a core of well-informed fandom. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, was a, it was a reasonable sample of what was going on. I'm not sure you really get that anymore because, you know, the people who attend Worldcon are a certain type of fan, certain type of age. Yeah. Um, and it's becoming, you know, to a degree less relevant as, as more and more things happen on the Internet, especially for the younger crowd. So it just feels like things are much more distributed. It's much harder to, to have a, a concept of best in a way, even mm. um, because, you know, there'll be such a wide gulf of opinion about what constitutes best. I mean, will will Wheel of Time win this this year, for instance? I mean, it, it very well might win a Hugo this year, mm. I'm guessing. Uh, but that would be, you know, I'm guessing there would be a lot of Hugo voters for whom Wheel of Time will not constitute their idea of best in any way whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a loaded statement, Joe. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, that, from from what I read on, yes. on the comments. No, no, I think you're right. So, uh, so it's sort of. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think things are just too distributed now to really have a, a single notion anymore. So you finished Half a King, obviously, which is going to be in the stores in late June, early July, I believe. Uh, it's July 3rd in the UK and then I think the 15th in the US. And, obviously, and I assume you're well progressed on the follow-ups to those. The, you know, the second one's finished uh, and is, is, needs to be edited, but has come back from the editor's. Fantastic book. Looking very, for, very good book I've, again. I've got to say, having been kept up till two o'clock in the morning reading Half a King, I'm very curious to read Half a World. Yeah, well, it's a sort of it's a, it's quite a different style of book in a way. Has two central points of view, um, and is a bit more action orientated, you might say. Uh, but it's gone down very well with the editors anyway. They seem they seem really pleased with it. But there's there's some work still to do on that. And then I'm just um, underway with the third one now uh, because. The second one's out in February 2015, and then the third one hopefully will be July 2015. So it's a a quick turnaround, and that means I've got to have it finished by the end of the year. Uh, <laughs> plus touring and various other stuff that I've got to do. So I'm kind of busy. Yeah. Yeah, because this is actually the the crazy period of of this sort of thing, isn't it? I mean, you're now supposed to be out there selling, well, promoting Half a King, yeah. while you're still trying to finish the last book in the set yeah and i mean also of course you've got to have your constant your constant game face on the internet (laughs) hoping that you don't accidentally let rip some horrifying uh faux pas on twitter that will result in you being swarmed by internet vultures you know you you can't ignore the internet before it hits the ground (laughs) (laughs) so you can't ignore the internet no you can't (laughs) You can't ignore the internet, and everything's you know the, the internet's such an important tool for publishers yeah. these days as well. You know, and, and having authors with a presence on the internet is very handy for them, and it's very useful to do, and it's it's great to have the contact with people. But it does take up, you know, a, a degree of your, your your physical time and also your sort of emotional energy, um, and also you know I know from experience when a book comes out, you become sort of gripped by the reaction to it over the sort of couple of weeks after mm. it appears. Over time, it settles down, and you're kind of no longer bothered. Yeah. You know, if if someone tore into one of my my second or third book now, I'd be kind of yeah. You know, not not that bothered. <laughs> it's sort of achieved its place. Is now etched in stone, one way or another. Whereas you know, your new book, you're sort of outraged if someone gives it a one star review and delighted by a positive review. So that'll be very distracting. And with three books coming out over the course of a year, they've always been previously you know i've had quite big gaps between mm. releases you know a year and a half generally um so having so many out so quickly is going to mean a sort of a but constant seems- merry-go-round of touring and publicity and interviews and all that sort of stuff which will be quite distracting yes well i think that maybe maybe the acceleration caused by the internet by twitter and by uh, other phenomena is, is 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 encouraging this to happen because uh the, the time between novels, certainly if you look at uh, Jeff Vandermeer's series, it's what, a matter of a, a few months between mm-hmm. the first and second. Yeah, uh, yeah. And that's it. Um, and I think that uh, from a reader's point of view, obviously when you finish a novel uh, and you're in the middle and you like these characters, 
you don't want to wait a year. Uh, and um, it, it's ironic that, uh, that that writers, that readers get so possessive of the characters that they could, as they did famously a few years ago, start attacking George Martin because he's not writing fast enough. Um, yeah, so well, can, but then it's also interesting that, that you know a lot of the most popular, the, the really big fantasy uh, properties, are ones where people have been forced to wait a long time. Actually, mm-hmm. um, I mean, Pat Rothfuss has, has, has left readers waiting for a long time, and been much criticised, but it hasn't stopped him buying it at all. No, um, you know, likewise George. I mean, you know, huge upset and and faffing around and gnashing of teeth and whatever. I mean, the, the bottom line is you get the book when it's done, don't you? There's just, it's, it it's as simple as that, really. No one else can write it, so you just got to wait. <laughs> if you want it, you just got to wait. So Get tough, away, yeah. you know. But the, you know, the, the, are we really pretending that the people who complain the loudest aren't the ones who'll be first in the queue, of camping overnight when it does appear? Well, you bet. Yeah. I, I'm curious as well. I mean, you're obviously completely immersed in, you know, in, in the series at the moment, but have you begun to cast your eye at what happens next? What you're going to do once? Oh you're God. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I have I have a little bit because um, I, I kind of have a contract outstanding for yeah. that, and spent the money and stuff. So <laughs> I need to write it at some point. Uh, and uh, so there is a, a sort of trilogy in the offing um, in the first law world, and another trilogy in that world. Uh, again, back, back with uh, Glance yeah. in the UK. So I mean, that would be that's definitely the next project. I mean, it, I have some rough ideas, but it hasn't taken a lot of shape in my mind yet. Sure. Um, this series is so kind of is the, the turnaround so quick, and I've I've got to be, you know, have my head in that game so much that it's hard to uh, to do that. Having said that, I've written I've written a few short stories in the first mm. world at the same time, and there's a there should be a, a an anthology of those or a collection of those coming out. I think in 2016, mm-hmm. um, there'll be a collection of just my short uh, first law short stories sometime around then. So that's gradually grinding on and uh yeah there'll be some new versions of the um of the first law books with some short stories sort of added in yeah as well uh in due course so you know it all grinds on there's always there's always more to think about no doubt i guess the, the real reason i asked about it as much as anything is i'll be curious and I, I guess there's no way to answer it meaningfully about how the experience of writing this series which mm. is structurally different from the other books you've written yeah will impact on what you do next as, as a learn yeah yeah, we, yeah i mean it'll make it shorter <laughs> almost certainly because <laughs> uh, the the experience of writing these has been i mean not not simply that oh i can publish a book every six months if i write a book that's a third as long mm. you know uh-huh. which is of itself an important realization to make and a, a not entirely an obvious one no um <laughs> but you know, I suppose I'd thought it would be, it would still take a lot longer to develop and, and get my head around the ideas, but actually it has been, you know, about as simple as yeah. that. A book a third as long as taking a third of the time. Um, so that's hard to ignore, but I think also just a, a feeling that you can achieve a lot of the same things in a shorter time if you're kind of a bit more focused mm. and a bit more just a bit more of a sense that you're driving towards a destination, you know, yeah. uh, rather than just spinning the wheels. Um, so I feel like I've definitely learned some lessons on pacing and on, on structure. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Adam Neville, yeah, the British horror writer. I met, I met him in Spain a couple of years back. Um, and he was explained to me is this, uh, philosophy he has of life and death on every page. <laughs> and, uh, that's that sort of resonated with me quite a lot. I, I, I've modified it to a slap in the face on every page, but that's what I was kind of going for with, uh, with Half King and its sequels to make every page have something that you know makes you laugh, makes you cry, shocks you, always for it to be absolutely on point and doing a job. Um, so that's kind of I, I suppose I've taken on that lesson. That's that's going to be a lesson that I don't think I can unlearn when going back to adult stuff. So I think they'll definitely be shorter, tighter more focused books with a bit more containment to them. I think that's going to be hard to avoid, at least for these next three. And then we'll yeah. see how that how that plays with the audience, I guess. Well, I guess we've come pretty much towards the end, end of the hour. I'd like to thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure getting yeah. to talk to you about this. Absolutely. No, likewise. A real pleasure. And I, I don't know if... Will you be at uh, the World, World Convention this year, Science Fiction Convention this year? Uh, I'll be at... 
Comic Con in in San Diego. Yep. And then I'll be at Worldcon uh, in London. Yeah. Um, and possibly a few other places yeah. in between. Well, we might. I'm doing it. Yeah. We might see you in London for for a beverage or two while we're there. There may be a beverage or two had at Worldcon. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be totally surprised if that were to happen. By the by, the collected the collected authors of the science fiction and fantasy scene of the world will probably polish off a beverage or two. I shouldn't be surprised. I imagine that is my experience of those events. Well, hopefully we shall see you there. <laughs> yeah, look and, forward to it. And until until then, our, our as I say, our great thanks. Uh, the, yeah. the the book is out in July. Um, and as I say, I loved it. It was compulsively readable. Can't wait to to, to get on to half a world. So. Thanks a lot, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Our pleasure. And, uh, Great. Best of luck with all your endeavours and your Locust nomination, Jonathan. As Thank well, you yeah. very much. Thank you. Luck Appreciate it. Yep. And Gary, until next week when we all talk again about things that we talk about when we do this. Things we talk about. Good. Okay. Bye. Thank you very much. <laughs>